you're listening to the Socialist Lawyer Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining tonight's talk, um, which is called Resisting the Criminalization of Anti-Zionism and Palestine Solidarity by Confronting Israeli Apartheid in and Beyond the Courtroom. Uh, my name is Frank McGuinness. I'm a practicing barrister and I'm a member of the Haldane Society Executive Committee. It's my great privilege to be chairing tonight's discussion, which is being recorded and which will be released hopefully as a podcast. Now, I feel compelled to uh, begin tonight's event by paying tribute to Shireen Abu Akla, the Palestinian Al Jazeera journalist murdered by an Israeli occupation sniper only yesterday. Uh, others on this panel will have uh, more powerful things to say in her memory than I possibly could. But let me just say that it's been obvious from the um, immense outpouring of grief that the woman was admired and respected by a truly uh, staggering number of people. And her assassination by the Israeli occupation forces provides one more tragic example of how an apartheid regime will find horrific ways to silence those who dare to document its many crimes. May she rest in power. Let me now say just a few words about the host of tonight's event. The Haldane Society was founded in 1930. It provides a forum for the discussion and analysis of law and the legal system, both nationally and internationally, from a socialist perspective. It holds frequent public meetings and conducts educational programmes. The Haldane Society is independent of any political party. Membership comprises lawyers, academics, students and legal workers, as well as trade union and labour movement affiliates. We have a long-standing policy as a society of uh, supporting freedom for Palestine, and we advocate for this uh, domestically and internationally through our affiliation to the International Association of Democratic Lawyers. Uh, we have previously sent legal delegations to Palestine and have hosted Palestinian lawyers and activists, including through our Defending Human Rights Defenders Conference and in talks such as at the fringe of the Labour Party Conference. We're del delighted to continue this tradition of Palestine solidarity this evening, and we would like to thank, uh, in particular, our executive committee members, uh, Saskia O'Hara and Art Badivuku, for uh, organising the event. When it comes to the struggle for Palestinian liberation, there is both cause for concern and yet also much cause for hope. Concern, to take only one example, because in the latest Queen's speech, this Tory government with its 80 seat majority has committed itself to criminalizing boycott, divestment and sanctions, the so-called BDS movement by which Palestinians um, and Palestinian civil society, as well as allies of the, the Palestinian struggle are attempting to, to confront the Israeli government. But as I say, there's also calls for hope. Um, and that again, just to take one example, I think there's cause for hope because we now benefit from a number of reports by uh, liberal human rights NGOs confirming that Israel is governed by an apartheid regime. And what I want to do is to venture a view, and this is something I've discussed with uh, a number of Palestinian and anti-Zionist Jewish comrades, uh, and I'm, I should say I'm particularly indebted to Rania Maharab for what she's had to say about um, this issue. And the, the point is simply this. In liberal circles, it has recently become more or less acceptable to name and criticise the reality of Israeli apartheid. But a state apparatus necessarily has an associated ideology. And in the case of Israeli apartheid, that ideology is quite clearly Zionism. 
Zionism is kind of racism. It is a colonial ideology and it animates uh, Israel's apartheid regime, a regime calling itself the Jewish state, a regime that race, racially dom dominates uh, non-Jews and Palestinians in particular. And so we find ourselves in a, a somewhat bizarre situation, one in which it's possible to criticize Israel's apartheid regime, but not the colonial racist ideology that has always animated it. So let's be clear, anti-Zionism is an integral part of any meaningful Palestine solidarity. You can't claim to support Palestinian emancipation while continuing to support Zionism, at least not without falling into total incoherence. So our critique of apartheid and Zionism has a growing number of legal applications in both domestic and international legal contexts. Um, Palestinian and anti-Zionist Jewish Israelis can claim asylum on the basis that they'll be persecuted uh, in the meaning of the Refugee Convention for their anti-Zionist political opinions and their fear of being conscripted into an apartheid regime. Uh, apartheid has clear relevance to uh, Palestine solidarity activists navigating Britain's criminal courts and Palestinians in Palestine uh, might even seek to argue that the English High Court provides the more appropriate forum for bringing defamation claims when Zionists in Palestine uh, attack um, the, the, the reputation of Palestinian human rights defenders on the basis that Israel's apartheid courts are institutionally incapable of providing a fair hearing. Uh, and we might contemplate legally and politically challenging British-based charities that openly espouse Zionist goals. So tonight, our brilliant panel of speakers are going to explore how to re resist ongoing attempts by both the British government and by Israel's apartheid regime to suppress and criminalize anti-Zionism and Palestine solidarity. So we'll hear first from Mira Hamad, who's uh, a barrister at Garden Court North Chambers in Manchester. Uh, she specializes in inquests, inquiries and criminal defense, and she has uh, particular success defending protesters across across a, a wide range of offences, including criminal damage. She'll be talking about the state of play regarding the criminalisation of pro-Palestinian advocacy uh, in England and Wales. And she'll then uh, share some thoughts on how to run justification defences. We'll then hear from Giovanni Fassina, who's the director of the European Legal Support Centre, the first and only independent organisation providing free legal advice and assistance to uh, associations, human rights NGOs, groups and individuals advocating for Palestinian rights in mainland Europe and the United Kingdom. Uh, Giovanni oversees the centre's legal team, who is uh, the head of the Centre for Applied International Law in Al-Haq. Uh, Wissam earned his uh, BA in political science and sociology and a, a JD from Louisiana State University, uh, as well as a, an LLM in international human rights law from the National University of Ireland in Galway. Uh, Wissam has been working as a human rights advocate with Al-Haq since 2006, with a focus on business and human rights and the role of corporate actors in economic incentive structures, perpetuating the continued colonization of Palestine along business lines. Uh, and without further ado, um, please let me hand over to our first speaker, uh, Mira. Over to you, Mira. Thanks, Frank. Um, I'd like to start as well by paying tribute to Shireen. Uh, Shireen Abouakli, stood alone really in terms of Palestinian journalists. Um, she has been on Al Jazeera for uh, 25 years. Um, and I think my mum my put it really well yesterday when she said, it feels like we've lost a friend because we were so uh, familiar with seeing her and seeing her reporting. She was born in Jerusalem. Um, 
she became an American citizen, but she stayed um, and devoted her life to freedom for Palestine. Um, and it's devastating really that she also, her death is because of the lack of freedom of Palestine. And of course, even though she stands alone as a journalist, um, her killing does not stand alone. It's part of a pattern of the systemic abuse of Palestinian journalists and the systemic attack on Palestinian freedom of speech. And of course, um, just in April, um, the UK-based uh, lawyers for uh, with the International Federation of Journalists filed submissions to the International Criminal Court alleging a systemic targeting of journalists by Israeli forces. And what happened to Shireen is absolutely an example of that. Um, she's one of at least 144 Palestinian journalists who have been targeted since 2018 and seriously wounded or killed by the Israeli army. Um, and I, I start off with that because it's really important when we're talking about protests and protest rights here in the UK. Um, proportionality has a specific meaning in relation to protest law, but what it doesn't consider is the proportionality of the protests um, and the actions of the protesters, and it hasn't considered yet, um, compared to the proportionality of the rights abuses which they are protesting. Um, and so far, the European court um, and the courts locally have been careful to say, well, the content of a protest is important insofar as it needs to be about a weighty political topic. And it's relevant uh, insofar as political speech and important political speech affords more protection. Um, but it doesn't matter to us what the content is, as long as that content is not attacking the democratic uh, freedoms and the democratic human rights uh, and basis of the European Convention on Human Rights. But there really isn't a principled basis according to which the European court can say, well, we're not going to defend speech or actions which are attacking the very basis of the ECHR. But if what the protesters are protesting against are actions or speech which attack the basis of those fundamental rights, then that's not relevant to our assessment of the proportionality of the protest. So that's just a thought. It's not something that's been um, considered, I don't think, in the case law, but it is something that is really important when you speak to people on the street, when you speak to protesters and their motivations, um, there's a real disconnect between where the case law is and the way that people consider proportionality and the disruption of their rights um, as lay people. Um, another thing that I wanted to highlight uh, in relation to what happened to Shireen, um, I wanted to read a statement by uh, the Israeli military spokesperson, Ron uh, Kachov, um, who told the army radio that um, Abu Akhle was filming and working for a media outlet amidst armed Palestinians. They're armed with cameras, 
if you'll permit me to say so. Now, I thought that statement was incredibly revealing, not because it was what the Israeli military thought, but because the Israeli military feel bold enough to describe Palestinian journalists as being armed with cameras. Um, and it's really a reflection of how dangerous the state and the Israeli state to uh, a much greater extent, uh, how dangerous they see protest and how dangerous they see freedom of speech, reporting and truth telling. And again, on a much smaller scale, taking into account the proportionality that I've just raised and the, the vast difference between the attacks on protesters here and the attacks on protesters uh, by Israel, um, we've seen a similar uh, crackdown by the state in terms of um, charges and criminalization of protesters here in the UK. Now, very often what we see now is that even people who have not participated in the protest, so where somebody has gone and has filmed um, acts of alleged criminal damage and then live streamed it or uploaded it, um, even where they've had no involvement whatsoever in the damage that's happened, they have been prosecuted on a joint enterprise basis. And so you can see similarly to the Israel saying, well, a camera is a weapon. Over here, they're saying, well, you are giving. And in fact, one prosecutor actually put it this way in a case that I, I did um, you're giving the oxygen of publicity to the protest that's happening. And so we see, again, this infringement of freedom of speech um, and the danger that that poses, the danger that truth-telling poses to the state. And in that circumstance, I think we've had success in terms of taking the proportionality arguments and applying them to joint enterprise. Of course, joint enterprise in English law um, and the English case law is incredibly regressive. It's um, developed in a way that criminalizes people who have very minimal involvement. We've had success at a magistrate's court level, in essence, getting um, judges to read proportionality arguments into the uh, principle of joint enterprise. So uh, that's something I'd encourage lawyers to look at. Moving on from that, uh, I agree completely with um, Frank when he says that we are at a really dangerous time uh, in terms of protest rights generally and Palestinian speech in particular here in the UK. And it's um, really uh, ironic that in the same Queen's speech that um, the government proposes criminalizing BDS, the headline of that uh, Queen's speech is that the government is going to protect freedom of speech um, and uh, crack down on political correctness. Now, how those two things work together, um, I don't know. Um, and so it's a difficult time really to be talking to you about um, pro-Palestinian, the criminalization of pro-Palestinian protests, because everything is up in the air. We've got uh, a, the introduction of a new act, which could be um, 
interpreted in a lot of different ways, um, and which is coming into force. We've got uh, the new, the potentially getting rid of the Human Rights Act. It's a time when, um, as well, the case law that we've seen has become more and more regressive and repressive. Now, in terms of um, the Palestinian picture, what we've also seen is what Frank touched on, which is an increasing recognition within mainstream human rights organizations of the um, seriousness and the extent of the human rights abuses. So we now have uh, not only um, specialized NGOs like Yeshdin, like Al-Haq first and the Palestinian NGOs first, um, like Bid Salim, but we also have the two sort of major Western uh, human rights advocacy NGOs, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, saying that the situation in Palestine now amounts to one of apartheid. Um, and that's very relevant when it comes to looking at justification defences. So uh, justification defences are um, building an argument that, yes, the act um, that's being alleged happened, but it was justified to prevent crime um, or it was justified to prevent uh, the loss of life or to prevent um, the uh, attacks on property. Now, um, a few uh, tips for dealing with justification defences. Firstly, um, there's case law to the effect that expert evidence isn't necessary to deal with the legality of, um, uh, of an international situation. And so that's the case of, of Jones, which talks about expert evidence and says, in essence, we're a court of law. You don't need to bring expert evidence to tell us what is or isn't illegal. Now, that's one thing, but the reality is that, of course, all of these expert opinions, whether that's Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, um, or the uh, opinion recently of uh, UN um, experts, are based on a set of facts and applying the legal framework for apartheid to a set of facts. Um, and of course, those facts are outside of the knowledge of lay people, they'll be outside of the knowledge of juries, they'll be outside of the knowledge of uh, judges. And it's important that expert evidence um, is obtained and is. Uh, we argue that it's admissible because these facts in this context are absolutely not common knowledge. And when we apply the situation, the reason why, of course, the mainstream NGOs are accepting the situation in Palestine is one of apartheid, because when you fairly apply um, the facts to the legal framework, you can see that the situation, uh, the term apartheid accurately describes the situation, right? So um, to take one example, if I, as an Israeli settler, go into a Palestinian area of the West Bank and I stab somebody and I kill them, I am then tried in an Israeli court, which has a semblance of the same rights that you would have in 
a democratic justice system. If I, as a Palestinian, commit exactly the same crime, I am tried in a Palestinian uh, military, in, in a military court, which is just reserved for Palestinians with a completely different set of rights. I therefore, as an Israeli or as a Palestinian, I'm carrying my rights with me to a different area, purely on the basis of my ethnicity. Um, and these are the facts which underlie the arguments that you can make when it comes to justification. Now, uh, the other sort of tip that I would have, uh, along with uh, gathering expert evidence, of course, is that whatever justification defences and um, whatever defences you um, make, of course, have to flow from what motivated the client. And that's what we've seen as being the uh, make or break, really, of cases is what motivated that client and what is the defendant's story? Because most of the defendants who've been involved in pro-Palestinian activism have really personal stories as to how they became motivated to act for Palestine. Uh, they have personal justifications of the um, what they've seen. And in many cases, defendants can and have told me we've seen a specific article uh, we've seen uh, specific videos, we've seen, um, we've read a specific report. Now, all of that can be presented as part of a defendant's evidence. It's not hearsay because you're not saying um, this, that the, the defendant is, we're, we're showing this as evidence of truth. We're saying this is what was in the defendant's mind and this was what motivated the defendant so when the jury or the court is assessing the defendant's state of mind, all of this material that motivated the defendant is relevant. And so that's the other sort of main uh, tip that I'd give for justification defences. And I think I've got to the end of my time. You've got about a minute, Mary, if you still have more to say. Still got a, a few minutes. Yeah, a minute. All right, great. Um, and so I'll just sort of, wrap up by saying um, that what we've seen, as well as the introduction of the crime and, um, the, sorry, the police courts and, uh, 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 bill, um, and potentially getting rid of the Human Rights Act is uh, narrowing by the courts of uh, protest offences on a case law level, uh, whether that's been Zeigler recently, um, protesters being sent to prison more freely. And what we've seen in the UK has in essence mirrored what we've seen in the rest of the world, which is a surging intensity and volume of support for Palestine among the people on the ground. And then at the state level, um, increased uh, intensity and volume in terms of the attempts to shut down that solidarity. But if we look back on uh, other civil rights movements, uh, history tells us that eventually in that clash, in that dynamic, the people are hopefully going to win. Thank you very much, Mira. Over to you, Giovanni. Yeah, can you, can you see me? Yes. Thank you, thank you so much uh, for inviting me today. And I will try to, to, to start from what 
Mira was was talking about, uh, which is uh, on uh, yeah, I don't know how danger uh, it also European government need to see freedom of speech and freedom of protest, and especially how uh, how how scared they are of direct and collective action. And uh, because this kind of criminalization indeed is not happening only in the UK, uh, but uh, uh, it's opening, it's happening also in many other European countries such as uh, France or Germany and Austria. But what I'm gonna tell today is, uh, I wanna try to explain very briefly that this kind of criminalization is a bit more insidious and a bit more subtle. Uh, because it happens not through direct uh, through primary legislation trying to criminalize specific acts, but it happens more through soft law. And I'm gonna and because of this, I'm gonna tell you a few interesting cases we've been working on uh, uh, both in Germany and uh, Austria. Uh, in Germany and Austria, um, uh, national parliaments, but also local municipalities, have adopted anti-BDS motions. These motions are, of course, not legally binding, and these motions basically equate BDS with anti-Semitism and so-called Israel-related anti-Semitism. And uh, in, uh, by doing this equation, this motion call for public uh, bodies to not give any rooms to BDS activities and to not provide any kind of funds. Again, are not legally binding, and are only directed in theory to uh, private, to public bodies. However, what we have been seeing is that uh, this motion de facto uh, stigmatize uh, organization and individual only for advocating for uh, Palestine, because uh, you just need to be uh, singled out as a BDS activist or someone who maybe signed a petition close to BDS for being excluded by the public debate uh, and, and, and also by public and private spaces. Like, uh, so basically in, in Germany and, 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 and Austria, we have dozens of cases of civil society organizations. And we're talking about like uh, Palestinian women organizations uh, and, and just individuals asking for rooms for organizing event or debate who have been denied uh, because of this anti-BDS motion. And this also happened in private bodies. So we had in Austria uh, a cinema who rejected uh, who, who rejected the request to uh, to have uh, to show a Palestinian movie uh, because the request was made by uh, BDS uh, uh, Austria. Uh, and 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 the cinema, which is a private body, should not be even concerned about this. Pointed out to this anti-BDS uh, uh, motion. So uh, uh, the use of this soft law is extremely concerning. Uh, however, the positive thing is that uh, in the recent years, uh, all these activists had to turn to court uh, to defend their constitutional rights. And to date, we have at least eight German courts that have upheld um, the right of the activists to use these public facilities and have completely dismissed the validity of this anti-BDS motion. Uh, so, this is, so this is what happened in Germany for us, of course, is very important because we, we managed to achieve uh, uh, this, first of all, through the help of amazing and very brave German lawyers who are uh, Ahmed Abed and Nadia Smur, for instance. Uh, because just dealing with these topics in Germany is a career killer. In a sense, you won't gonna work, full stop. Or you're gonna work just in a very, very niche area. So already finding lawyers who are willing to take this case and strategize around this case has been extremely, extremely difficult. And again, 
it's really important to mention the work, especially Ahmed uh, did in the last years. And, and through uh, his, his, uh, his work, but also our support, we had all these courts that basically did are uh, acknowledge the fact that these anti-BDS motion are not law. And so uh, soft law cannot restrict fundamental rights like freedom of expression, freedom of association. Uh, the courts also acknowledged that uh, uh, these uh, 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 anti-BDS uh, uh, resolutions uh, are violating uh, the fundamental rights. And most importantly, the courts also implicitly acknowledge that BDS is a legitimate human rights movement because the court uh, uh, and, and the verbatim uh, really, uh, the, the court really uh, affirmed that uh, uh, um, uh, the, uh, sorry, I'm trying to read the verbatim. Uh, the court acknowledged that uh, uh, like the the the, the 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 party presenting the motion should present su uh, suitable evidence uh, for uh, for for claiming that BDS is is anti-Semitic, and at the moment they didn't present any. So 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 they basically made it clear that it's it's an unfounded allegation to argue that uh, BDS is anti-Semitic. So we, so in Germany, we have we we achieved really really uh, uh, important wins in the last years, and and then I will share in in the chat uh, we uh, all the case summary of the case of the cases. Um, but today, also would like to to speak about two our pending cases we are working on that shows how indeed also criminalization happens, and one is the case of Anna Yunus. Uh, Anna Yunus is a, a scholar uh, of critical race, German-Palestinian scholar of critical race theory, which uh, in 2019 was invited to uh, attend a panel discuss strategy against right-wing extremism by Die Linke, which is the left party uh, in Germany. Uh, she was uninvited the day before, uh, and a week later, it turned out that uh, one organization, uh, two organizations, uh, uh, which are called RIAS and MBR, which are organizations monitoring anti-Semitism, had surveyed her and created a secret dossier on her, uh, framing her as basically an anti-Semitic and a terrorist sympathizer. This secret dossier was made by uh, copy-pasting some of her academic publication and uh, uh, going through her Facebook page. And, and they made these two pages document uh, with all this information. Uh, and they sent this secret dossier uh, to, uh, to the organizer and the organizer immediately uh, uh, disinvited her. Uh, were to say that the major issue here is because you would think, but why? An organization which is monitor anti-Semitism, which is monitor uh, anti-Semitism, and they, I also must say they do a good work in monitoring right-wing extremism in Germany. Uh, uh, why are they now targeting a German-Palestinian scholar? The reason why is that since three years they adopted the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. So because they're using IHRA, they now started uh, uh, um, targeting also also uh, people advocating Palestinian rights. So this case is, is uh, so basically after this, you know, uh, uh, Anna uh, requested this organization to disclose the data we have on her. This organization refused, refused and they say, no, we won't give you any data because we are protected by uh, academic freedom and uh, freedom of journalism. 
And so after that, uh, she filed uh, a lawsuit to the data protection officer, uh, invoking violation of their privacy rights. After two years of complete, of that the data protection authority was was not active. Uh, uh, um, Anna recently uh, filed two other lawsuits: one against the data protection authority because they were completely inactive, and then filed other two lawsuits, uh, like uh, uh, application for interim measure before the court. And I'm very happy to say that we uh, we will have soon uh, a judgment, and 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 we are kind of confident that that's going to be that's going to be positive, of course. Um, and then the other case where I want to speak about when it comes to criminalization is another case in in Austria, uh, where. Uh, in Austria, uh, like uh, in, an activist of, of BDS Austria, published uh, a Facebook post with the famous picture of the poster uh, "Visit Apartheid," which was affixed uh, on, a, on, a, on a billboard of the city of, of Vienna, where you could see the logo of the city of Vienna. And the post had the sarcastic caption, we are happy, we are pleased to see that the city of Vienna is finally acknowledging that Israel is committing apartheid. Well, the activist was uh, sued for uh, uh, defamation, basically. Um, and, and the reason of the, um, and the, reason of the, of, of the, of the city was that uh, 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 according to this municipality, the BDS incites to hatred against Israeli people and uh, associating the city of Vienna with the BDS would amount to defamation since uh, uh, the designation of a situation in Israel Palestine as an apartheid constitutes damage to our reputation. Uh, even more surprisingly, uh, the court uh, held uh, um, issued the first judgment uh, uh, almost uh, one month uh, one month ago, where uh, uh, actually uh, uh, acknowledged the claim of the of the plaintiff, uh, and of course we appealed because the decision was highly contestable in the sense that they didn't even take into consideration our evidence. Uh, but this is another, in my opinion, another. And, and so like, we are waiting the appeal in a, in a couple of months because it is a fast track procedure. Uh, but, but again, also with the use of strategic lawsuit against public participation against through anti-BDS motion is another example on, on how uh, 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 government uh, are trying to, to suppress uh, uh, any kind of debate surrounding Palestine. Because again, the major goal is to intimidate and create eventually a chilling effect. Um, but again, on the other side, we are kind of, we are very uh, hopeful, uh, and as Bianchi said, we have the optimism of the will, uh, because so far the case law in Germany has been very positive. Also recently, there is another very important judgment in France where two organizations supporting BDS have been, uh, um, have been deemed uh, illegal by the Ministry of Interior. Uh, on the base that BDS is a public incitement to discrimination. And just one week ago, the French conceded that the, the, the administrative court uh, 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 this, um, basically rejected the, the decision of the Ministry of Interior, once again, once again, explaining that uh, there is a big difference between incitement to discrimination and BDS, and BDS cannot be deemed as a formal incitement of discrimination. 
And just and, and I would like also to reiterate that this is also because of, uh, of the judgment uh, which has been issued in uh, 2020 by the European Court of Human Rights, which is uh, uh, the judgment Baldassi versus France. And in this judgment, uh, uh, the European Court of Human Rights uh, explained very clearly the difference between the incitement to discrimination and BDS. And uh, in, in that case, uh, 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 um, acknowledge that uh, BDS is a protected form of freedom of expression. And as you all know, like these judgments are uh, directly applicable and directly uh, valid in, in uh, all the states uh, that are member of the Council of Europe. And so we saw that, that, that really the importance of, of, of this judgment, because uh, also in Germany uh, and also in France, uh, uh, the courts are keep reusing uh, such an important precedent. And uh, so just want to finish by saying that what we learned so far in terms of strategy is that, you know, uh, we won these cases because we, we mobilized as many people as possible, civil society organization, academics. In all these cases, we filed that we, we really overload the court with dozens of, uh, of um, submissions uh, signed by uh, Palestinian human rights organization and expert on the issue of apartheid, on, on, on all this, uh, on, on um, freedom of expression on the European Convention of Human Rights. So, of course, building, uh, uh, developing uh, a collective strategy has been also always, I think, very, uh, yeah, very successful. And, and we should keep uh, doing this. And that's it. Thanks. Fantastic. Thank you so much, um, Giovanni. Um, let me hand it over to you now, Wesam. Thank you very much, Frank. And also to uh, to follow up on the um, the, the death of and the killing of uh, Shirin Abu Akhtar. Uh, and and uh, Mira, you uh, mentioned it uh, a number of times in uh, in your presentation. Uh, the the role that Shirin played in uh, in the pursuit of truth and and truth telling. Uh, uh, as uh, as a journalist um, and and shedding light on uh, the situation in Palestine and the plight of the Palestinian people under occupation, um, this uh, is very much connected to why I wanted to share my screen. But even if it's uh, not possible now, I can uh, uh, bring it up a little bit later. But the issue of the truth that we are pursuing. And uh, I represent uh, Al-Haq, which is a Palestinian human rights organization. It's the first Palestinian human rights organization established back in 1979. And the meaning uh, of Al-Haq, uh, obviously uh, the Arabic language is, uh, is a complex language with uh, words having multiple meanings, but one of them at least uh, is Al-Haq is truth. And, uh, and the discussions that uh, uh, we've seen in the last, uh, um, most recently in the last uh, year or so, but uh, even before that, uh, the, the discussion around uh, apartheid and, and um, a greater realization uh, by more mainstream uh, um, uh, NGOs uh, um, coming to the, the conclusion that we have been arguing uh, for, for a long time. But it... it it's important to uh, highlight uh, something that the mirror also alluded to. It is uh, in conjunction with um, this uh, um, greater realization of what the truth is on the ground that we are seeing um, a curtailment in uh, 
the the thinking and the views uh, that uh, that stimulate the intellectual curiosity to pursue that truth. And you know, going to a, a more sort of uh, uh, philosophical uh, level of discussion in terms of, first of all, one of the first things we learn in, in law school is uh, law is a social construct. Um, and, and we also uh, learn about uh, uh, the, social the social contract that exists between the people and the, 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 the state and how that dynamic is supposed to play in terms of the state being a reflection of the will of uh, of the people, uh, this is a document from uh, the archives of the Palestine Economic Corporation. It's titled "The Colonization of Palestine: Means and Methods." And this is back in 1925. And if it's not clear in the uh, text uh, uh, of the picture. Um, the question that is posed here is what medium should be employed to colonize the country on a large scale? Uh, should it be done by philanthropy or treated as a business proposition along strict business lines? The reason I wanted to show that uh, picture and, and read that text is to put the, the bigger issue uh, front and center, which is this process of colonialism and the peeling back of the layers. Uh, behind uh, the application of international law, international humanitarian law, and looking at the issue of apartheid are all going deeper and deeper to expose the ultimate reality of the situation that we are seeing is uh, the continued colonization of Palestine and the issues um, and the structural dynamics of apartheid and, uh, and the transformation of an occupation um, into uh, uh, a prolonged occupation uh, to uh, a system of uh, colonialism um, and, and the implementation of the practice of apartheid. All of these um, are, are part of the, the pursuit of truth uh, that we have uh, engaged in as al-Haq in trying to understand the dynamics of international law and its application its enforcement or lack thereof. And one of the biggest challenges we've always faced in uh, trying to pursue the enforcement of international law, um, most of you uh, have heard it, uh, it's uh, the lack of political will. But what is political will? The, the, it, is it this uh, sort of amorphous, uh, um, abstract, uh, uh, Thing that that we can't comprehend, um, and so for me, I feel like it is our pursuit of understanding what makes up political will uh, that has led us to peel back those layers. When we see political will as a wall in front of our pursuit of truth, either we simply accept that this is the limit to our ability to inquire, or we dig into the foundations of that wall and understand what holds it up. We dig into the layers of the building of that wall to understand the history that has brought it to the point that it is behaving uh, in this particular way and how do we challenge it. And through this work, by challenging international law and its application or lack thereof, we have created 
a discomfort for Israel in its continued colonization of Palestine. And that discomfort has been, uh, uh, has been met with um, the criminalization of the pursuit of truth. And one of uh, the recent uh, developments in terms of Al-Haq specifically and other Palestinian human rights organizations is Israel's designation of our organizations um, as terrorist organizations. And this is part of a broader uh, um, phenomenon taking place uh, around the world of uh, the criminalization of the civil society and their pursuit of their rights, the pursuit of truth and exposing the truth. And all of this, uh, for me, it, it's, it reiterates a position that we constantly put forward that the Palestinian situation is a microcosm of global injustice. And, and the issues that the Palestinian people face, the challenges that we face, the plight that we face, it's replicated in different forms in different parts of the world, but we just see it magnified here within uh, the Palestinian context because of all of these layers coming together, the convergence of neoliberal imperialism, classic colonialism, exploitative capitalism, all coming together within the Palestinian context. And I think uh, anytime there's a criminalization of views, there's a criminalization of thought, an attempt to control thought, um, it is incumbent upon us to ask and inquire as to the, the source behind uh, this move. What is it that uh, they are trying to prevent us from seeing? And, and I think uh, these all are things that should be triggering a lot of thinking uh, within any society that uh, this is taking place. And I know the, the recent uh, speech that was given uh, um, and, and the highlighting of the, the coming legislation to uh, um, prevent uh, um, even discussions on, uh, on uh, uh, the BDS and, and uh, the role of uh, public uh, entities. Um, and, and again, it's not so much, I think, uh, the, the economic impact that, uh, that BDS has, it is the triggering of individual intellectual curiosity as to the role that an individual can play in their society and questioning the reflection of their views vis-a-vis -vis the state that represents them. And these are more underpinning questions about uh, where uh, society is going and, and how the state's actions are reflective of the will of the people. And uh, the, the thinking today that foreign policy is outside of the, the views of the individual citizens um, in a globalized world uh, doesn't hold water. And, and this needs to be uh, challenged. Um, and we have to recognize that Neoliberalism is also has a, uh, it's a juridical project in trying to isolate uh, um, those things which should be questioned and, uh, and asking why the law is what it is and uh, what is the basis for it. Um, all these things, I think, uh, uh, are coming to mind when we see these moves against uh, thought. And uh, you know, you're uh, you're based in the UK. Uh, I think uh, 
there is, uh, um, uh, no matter how old you are, you're familiar with uh, the uh, Pink Floyd and another brick in the wall. And, and this, I think, is uh, another uh, brick in the wall of apartheid in trying to prevent the inquiry into understanding what it is that is happening within the Palestinian context, inquiring when people hear about apartheid, they want to understand why it is that apartheid is being used and they want to come visit, they want to come see, they want to discuss and preventing that kind of thinking is an attempt uh, to, to hide the, the discussion and, and that pursuit of truth, which uh, I think uh, we are all uh, interested in, uh, in exposing and pursuing rather than simply accepting the, the status quo. And there's one uh, final point that I think uh, what I want to raise with regard to the, the issue of the, the criminalization of anti-Zionism. And again, I think if you just simply look at it as the present and the issue of Zionism and how it's uh, um, uh, addressed today, um, it's very much connected to the history. And uh, that history, as you look deeper and deeper into it, you see where the, the development of the Zionist project and its evolution and the initial uh, um, uh, divisions within uh, world Jewry and European Jewry specifically uh, with regard to Zionism and anti-Zionism within European Jewry, but also the, the evolution of the Jewish agency to incorporate uh, non-Zionists um, in order to fulfill the, the Zionist project, uh, the development uh, of uh, the colonization of Palestine along business lines, uh, putting Palestine as an investment opportunity. All these layers, as we look back, uh, um, it ex helps to expose the truth. But when you are prevented from having the discussion in the first place, it becomes very, very difficult uh, to uh, to pursue that truth. And this is the challenge that we are facing and we have to constantly uh, uh, keep up uh, that uh, that struggle. Uh, the, the final point uh, to keep in mind as well, there's, again, I'm just gonna throw out uh, a fact. Um, right now we are in the fourth international decade for the eradication of colonialism. Obviously that means colonialism has not been eradicated and we see it within Palestinian context in terms of 21st century colonialism, but um, it goes much deeper than that. But only three states formally voted no against this initiative with regard to the fourth international decade of, uh, for the eradication of colonialism. Those three states were the US, the UK, and Israel. Now I'll leave it there and hopefully uh, leave it up to you to ask yourselves the dynamics of such uh, situation in, the, in that reality and what we are seeing in terms of uh, legislative developments in terms of stifling uh, discourse and points of view in the pursuit of truth uh, within these contexts as well. Thank you very much again for the opportunity. Thank you very much, uh, Wissam, for that. Um, so we turn now to uh, the Q&A session. And as I think I explained before, if anyone has a question, you're very welcome to use the Q&A function, which you should be able to see on the bottom of your um, Zoom application. Um, now, we've 
got a question from uh, from Fuad uh, Majdalawi, um, who asks or states as follows: With all the egregious violations of international law by Israel, why is it that we have failed so far to successfully prosecute individuals involved in such criminal acts or corporates? For supplying or supporting or being involved in such criminal actions. I'm not a legal person, but I'm intrigued by the lack of legal deterrence. Um, who, who would like to answer that one first? I'm happy to jump in. I felt like I might have uh, um, raised it at least uh, during the presentation that uh, uh, law being the social construct, um, the, the role that law plays within society, even at the international level, um, is very much connected to uh, uh, power dynamics and, uh, and interests uh, within that society. Um, and uh, the enforcement of the law is very much connected to the will of uh, the international community to take action. And, uh, and we see this lack of political will in, with regard to, uh, to Israel, where in, we juxtapose it with the existence of political will to take action with regard to Ukraine. Um, you see um, uh, the the driving forces behind those actions. I think this is where uh, we need to ask ourselves what makes you act in a particular way in a particular context uh, as opposed to uh, to a different context. And that's why we can't expect the law to act on its own. Um, we have to put it to use and we have to challenge uh, the contradictions in its uh, in its application. And if we want to realize uh, a, a value-based international system rather than an interest-based international system, um, those laws have to be universally applied. But obviously, it's easier said than done. But this is part of the, the challenge to push it forward. Mira, did you want to say something? Yeah, just to add on, uh, completely agree um, with uh, what you've just said. And uh, on at the uh, level of English and Welsh law, um, actually the um, statutes that we have in place at the moment, both the Geneva Conventions Act and um, the ICC Act, which are both within domestic law, um, are wide enough to capture um, people and war criminals who come to the UK. And so specifically in terms of if you're looking at the Geneva Conventions Act 1957, that specifically criminalizes anybody who aids, abets, is part of um, a grave crime under the Geneva Conventions, which includes the crime of apartheid. Um, of course, there's the very um, famous case of um, the magistrates issuing uh, an arrest warrant for Zippy Livni which was then quashed by the High Court. But the reality is there isn't a lack of a legal framework. And we can see that even in relation to Ukraine and what's happened in the UK in terms of sanctions um, and the complete lack of willingness to apply the legal framework that exists in the context of Israel. And you can see that with the Crown Prosecution Service and the offences that are there. You can see that in terms of um, the Charity Commission. You can see that in terms of private organisations. It is a. It's not that we don't have the laws. It's that the people in power don't want to apply them. And Giovanni, did you want to jump in? 
Yeah, no, just very briefly, no, I fully agree. I fully agree with what Wissam and Mira said, and from our experience here in the Netherlands, um, also, uh, but and we also mean Alak wrote the case in the Netherlands was in 2000, I don't recall exactly when, 2012, I think, 2009, with Rival. I mean, what, what, what we saw here as well, the laws that are here, like in the Netherlands, the, the ICC statute is incorporated in their criminal code. So you might have hiding and bedding and all these crimes, but I mean, we discussed with also with former prosecutors and so on, uh, the political sensibility of the case make them inactive. And there is a huge amount of political pressure on prosecutors to dismiss the case. But usually their tactic is, uh, you know, they freeze the case for two, three years. So they, we wait the whole, maybe all the, 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 the communication or like the, the media campaigns around the case, they, they wait to, to drop the attention. And then, uh, uh, and then we just dismiss the case. But of course, like Venana, for instance, you can appeal uh, a decision to archive to, to, to dismiss a case. But again, it's going to take like years and years. So yeah, I I agree. And this take place probably in the Netherlands. So I mean, my, my faith, especially in criminal uh, justice, uh, seeking accountability through criminal justice system, really decreased, uh, uh, and because the discretion of prosecutors is, is huge, uh, and so this is really difficult. But on the other side, on the civil law, it's possible the costs are huge. The costs are huge. Try to bring a, a civil uh, liability case is it's really, it's really, it's really challenging. Just a small example in the Netherlands, Ismail Ziada, who is a Dutch-Palestinian from Gaza, who lost his family during the war in Gaza in 2014, and as a Dutch citizens, try to uh, uh, um, uh, try to um, sue uh, the uh, Benny Gantz, the two generals in charge of the bombing was in 2014 through a civil liability claim is uh, 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 seeking justice he lost the case but the cost for that is huge we're talk talking about uh, yeah a lot of money and it is possible to do for legal for mobilizing people but you know there are so many obstacles eventually you know when also when you go to a civil uh, route that make it very very difficult to, to do these things but i mean i guess we have to still keep trying yeah, thank you giovanni um so we have a question from uh, abdul fatah abu Slur, who are um who says uh, that zionists in israel confuse confuse the public by equalizing four terminologies that are not equal zionism equals judaism equals anti-Semitism equals Israeli. What should be done to influence media and public opinion to resist this, uh, this conflation? Um, Mira, do you want to take that first? Yeah, sure. Um, I think what needs to be done, which is what has been done so far successfully, for example, in the term of apartheid, is um, people have to be brave enough to talk about these things. And I think the real difficulty is that um, the level of backlash, and we've seen people, you know, this is the real cancel culture. We've seen people lose their jobs, lose um, academic posts uh, in uh, Germany at the moment. And that's something that Giovanni, I'm sure, knows much more um, than I do. Um, there's a lot of journalists who have lost their jobs because of um, pro-Palestinian um, activism being equated with anti-Semitism. Um, and sadly, the more that people insist and continue to speak about things like Zionism, 
um, the more difficult it is to continue to uh, wrongfully equate equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Because when people are outliers, and that's what we saw in relation to apartheid, right? So when Al-Haq was saying Israel is an apartheid state, um, the uh, charge leveled against Al-Haq is, well, that's anti-Semitic, it's based on anti-Semitism. It's much more difficult to level that charge against powerful Western NGOs, right? And we've seen, even though Israel continues to level that charge, it's much, much more difficult now. And you can pretty much say Israel is an apartheid state without the same backlash. Why? Because uh, more powerful people, more powerful organizations have been pushed, not have chosen independently, but have been pushed by organizations and people to use that terminology. And I think that's the only um, solution, the only way forward. Thanks, Mira. Um, Giovanni, did you want to say something about this conflation? It's a very challenging question. I mean, um, from my experience, what I saw is that, uh, um, I mean, like indeed, for, for, for influencing means building hegemony, right? We need to build uh, 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 like cultural hegemony to, 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 to try to uh, um, like expose uh, and uh, uh, that, uh, that this equation is, is basically false. Um, I mean, I'm gonna say maybe something a bit uh, extreme, but on the one side, I think that we should really, first of all, let uh, like Palestinians uh, speaking first, I think, because a lot of the time, what I saw also in my, my job is that, uh, uh, having uh, uh, like uh, uh, medium average white people saying whatever we want about Zionism uh, 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 is not sometimes helpful, you know. Uh, this is what I what what, what I saw, uh, and, and and while we should really let uh, um, more Palestinians and uh, keep a Palestinian agency, I think when we when we respect that, we that first of all should be should be really really uh, important. And then again. For influencing, influencing means organizing, in my opinion. Like people should be more strategic and 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 and, and should organize more. And when uh, uh, organizing become indeed more uh, more strategic, we can we can achieve something. But I mean, this is something that started forty years ago. You know, like uh, Said was the first one to to try to to debunk uh, this, this 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 equation. You know. So, so yeah, it's it's there is not um, like a fixed solu solution. I I think you know. Yeah, thanks, Giovanni. Um, Wesam, did you want to come in? Um, just to follow up on what's already been said, but it, it is about uh, um, taking the challenge of uh, of questioning what is put forward. I mean, this idea, this strategy of or this tactic of, of conflating terminology is very much uh, part of um, uh, a way uh, to engage in uh, uh, at, a, at a psychological level um, by putting terms uh, together on a regular basis, uh, you are naturally uh, starting to associate those terms with one another, and uh, and the the question that uh, needs to be asked is how do we overcome that uh, by parceling those uh, terms out? But that is not the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance simply accept. All of these things as one uh, bunch and uh, simply accept uh, 
what you are being told as uh, as what is right and uh, you shouldn't question. And again, this kind of takes me back to this evolution of uh, or devolution of uh, the ability to think within society and uh, and uh, take it out of the hands of individuals uh, to question uh, what they are uh, being uh, um, sold um, and uh, and instead uh, leaving it up uh, for the king to decide or as the case may be for the queen. Thanks, Wissam. Um, so we have a question um, from uh, Public Interest Law Centre. Um, so I'm not sure who in, in um, the Public Interest Law Centre asked this, but um, it says, or well, the question is, uh, what can we say to those who are new to the struggle for Palestine to give them confidence to protest in the face of uh, increased criminalization? Um, Giovanni, I wonder if I can ask you to ask that, answer that one first. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's important to always remark and highlight the positive examples of the cases we have when we fight back, because the examples there are many, really many, and that's also what I like, try to highlight in the presentation. When we start, like, um, so, so I, I think we start from that, uh, you know, uh, by, 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 yeah, I mean, it's important to discuss internally indeed also the criminalization, but again, stress that uh, when, when, uh, when a reason proper connection between like legal activism and, and, and activists, most of the time we succeed. That's, that, that's what is really, really important to, to, uh, to stress, of course. And in order to do that, also it, it's important to stress how, in order to succeed, what's relevant in my opinion is also having a network of support. That's the point. When people act on their own, act uh, impulsively, it's it's more easy to to get into troubles and face risk when people are act as a collective and a proper network of support is way more difficult. And just give another small example. I I, I think you are all aware about the case of Shahad Abu Salama in in Sheffield University. Uh, Shahad was uh, suspended from from teaching and was put under investigation due to uh, allegation of anti-Semitism. She mobilized everyone, really everyone. She had the UCU, uh, academics, students, activists, uh, uh, plus uh, with the legal pressure we, we, we put on the university, the investigation was immediately dropped. She got a better contract and now she's teaching there. You know, that's for me is a really good example on how it's possible. Why, why it was possible? Because she had a, a reclaimer her agency and she mobilized people and, and she do it in very strategic and, and smart way. Uh, so that's, that's from what I see, uh, what I saw so far, I think. Um, Wissam, did you have something to say um, to, to speak to that question? We have to push the law. Um, sometimes what uh, is right and wrong is not the same as what is legal and illegal. Um, and, uh, and we have to force the law to work in a way that uh, reflects what we uh, what we believe is right and uh, and that is going to be a challenge for sure um, especially within our context but uh, this is where our up-and-coming uh, legal minds and uh, next generation uh, scholars um, are going to continue to uh, to fight uh, this uh, this struggle and uh, and push the law to reflect the values of the society that we want to see developed Thanks. And, and Mira, what do you have to say about what we can do to um, improve and increase the confidence of people who are um, who want to, to protest in solidarity with Palestine? I think it's important 
whenever you're going to a protest and wherever you're participating in an action, to be aware of what the consequences of doing that could be and to go with, uh, and, and I'm, I'm a big fan of sort of informed consent in the sense of understanding why am I doing the protest? What uh, could the consequences on my life be? Now, I have met many activists who know that perfectly, who understand the consequences and say to me, look, I believe in what I'm working for. I believe in, and I think I I sort of always go back to this quote, but um, it's one of my favorites from Arundhati Roy, who says, um, a better world uh, is not uh, only on its way, a better world is here. On On a quiet day, I can hear it breathing. And I think that's the spirit that motivates activists. That's the spirit that motivated the Colston Four. That's the spirit that's motivated the activists that I've represented. Um, and, you know, we, we, we do have victories. Um, and I, I say the loyally thing, which is that we can't guarantee victory um, because the courts are unfair. And it sort of just to tie back to, uh, Fawad has a question up there saying, so Mira, with all these tools on hand, why have we failed to successfully prosecute any case? Well, the reason why is because... When, um, for example, an arrest warrant was issued for Zippy Livney, the government very quickly changed the law and said that you can't issue an arrest warrant without, um, uh, or for, for this particular crime, without the uh, consent of the director of public prosecutions. The next time she came to the UK, uh, an old friend of the Haldane Society, Keir Stommer, was director of the prosecutions of public prosecution and refused the application to issue an arrest warrant. So we are fighting an uneven battle, but you know what, given how uneven the battle is, we win a surprising amount of times. Um, Thanks, Mira. Um, I see Shama Alam has asked a question. Um, They ask, uh, it seems and is the situation for Palestinians is getting worse uh, by the second. When and how will it ever improve? Um, Where Sam, do you want to take that one first? Uh, in Arabic, there's a phrase, uh, it has to get worse before it gets better. So part of our optimism in seeing the constant deterioration is uh, the belief uh, that uh, things will eventually improve. Um, and, and part of the process to get to that uh, light at the end of the tunnel is uh, the challenges that we face along the way. So um, uh, we have to uh, remain optimistic uh, um, because uh, we have no other choice except to keep moving forward. I hope it's not an abuse of my position as the chair to um, to add something to the discussion, which um, comes from uh, Nora Erekat's um, staggering book. I really can't recommend it enough. Um, Justice for some law and the question of Palestine. Um, and at page 19 of her book, she um, she says as follows. Structural transformation is the purview of the strong. On its own, the law can neither undo the conditions that engendered the violation, nor recalibrate the balance of power that sustains it. It can be used only as a tool in support of a political strategy that aims for this transformation. So I I suppose my question to the panelists um, relates to the fact that it seems as though 
um, Zionism has deliberately tried to um, smash and fragment Palestinian resistance, um, and it's been particularly um, opposed in very material and violent ways to um, to kind of uh, internationalist left wing challenges to um, to Zionism and, and Israeli colonialism, and it seems as though um, it's left in its wake uh, a, a fragmented institutional framework within within which Palestinians really struggle to articulate uh, a collective strategy, and that of course is is central to the entire Zionist colonial project. So I suppose my my question is about strategy. What what would it what would it take, or where should we be looking for um, for the emergence of um, a unified Palestinian strategy? Um, and uh, what function does law play? What what are the uses as well as the limits of law in uh, carrying that strategy into effect? I'm sorry if that's an overly complex question. I mean, I guess the, the simple question is, what what do we do about strategy? Um, in order to solve uh, any problem, I think uh, the, the biggest challenge is to first identify what the source of that problem is. And uh, the the idea that there's a, a lack of Palestinian strategy, um, uh, I mean, there, no doubt there are problems internally, uh, but I think part of the challenge that uh, um, is fits within the broader sort of historical development of, of uh, neoliberalism and, and imperialism is this isolation that the Palestinian issue is somehow separated from the, the global issues that uh, that we see. And looking back at history, the, the Palestinian question has actually always been part of the Eastern question um, in terms of how the West viewed uh, the East. And I think if, if we want to uh, um, address the, the Palestinian issue, we have to address uh, injustice on a global scale as well. And there's a quote also from Nelson Mandela, um, and I think it shows the, the connection um, when he said that uh, South Africa will never truly be free until Palestine is free. And now, where is that connection? Uh, you're looking at South Africa, you're looking at Palestine. Uh, well, look back at history and you'll see uh, that connection. You'll see the, the model that uh, Theodore Herzl uh, um, built off of was the British South Africa company of Cecil Rhodes. And so when we look at the, the, the connection between uh, colonialism in different parts of the world, imperialism in a broader scale, and then the specific context specific issues, uh, we see those dynamics playing out in, in different forms, but it's important for us to step back and see the bigger picture and challenge the problem on a bigger scale. Uh, sometimes uh, in order to solve um, a problem on a micro level, you have to solve the problem at the macro level first. Perfect. Um, I, I, I'm conscious that we're running slightly short on time. So I wonder, Giovanni, if I mind if, if I um, skip over you to, to give Mira the last um, word on this. Yeah, I mean, that's just because, so because you asked what like Palestinians should do, and I cannot, answer to that because we some already gave it soon but but the thing you need taking from what we some was doing is uh, isn't it like in europe there is a myriad of like ngo and civil society actors that fight against racism uh, or they are extremely committed to to protect human rights and because i'm talking about this because this is something that i'm clashing with every day and 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 again i think what we should do at least in europe is to called the Palestinian exception, because what we've been constantly seeing is that groups that work on many, many issues, 
then when it comes to dealing with you because you're working on Palestine, uh, they, they, they get a bit more uh, cautious, you know, and I need, we need to stop that. I mean, we really need to fight this and, and make our discourse hegemonic in a way that, that also in Europe, finally, people and organizations, society organization, uh, try to uh, understand what Wissam was actually talking, but this is an intersectional struggle, first of all. I think that, that, that also using the law can be very uh, useful for bringing this change because the law eventually also in Europe, it's the same law that many groups are using to claiming uh, LGBTQ rights uh, or claiming rights for, for, uh, um, uh, for Muslims and, and, and so on. So, so I think it's, 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 this should be uh, something that we should keep trying doing, but uh, yeah, that's, that's it. Thanks Giovanni. And, and over to you, Mira, for the last part. Um, well, just to completely agree <laughs> again with everything that everyone's already said on this. And I think um, it's absolutely right what, um, what we're talking about, about things on a macro level, reflecting them on a micro level. So to take an example, the um, anti-BDS bill that is uh, coming about, yeah, exactly, progressive except for Palestine, but um, and, and in a similar way, the it's not a coincidence that the anti-progressive right wing have sided with Israel, right? So to take an example, the anti-BDS bill, a lot of the impetus for that bill has come from the uh, department of what they call themselves now communities and leveling up. Um, and that government department, if anybody's been following the Grenfell evidence, um, pushed for the deregulation uh, de uh, and many of the policies that ended in the deaths of 72 people at Grenfell, right? Because they don't care about the rights of people here at, in, in the UK, and they don't care about the human rights of Palestinians. And so you see there's a direct link between those regressive it, um, ideologies, that lack of care, lack of compassion, lack of love um, is what leads to colonialism, is what leads to seeing people as subhumans and things to dominate rather than uh, human beings that we can stand with in solidarity. Um, so we can see that on every single level. Um, thanks. Thanks, Mira. Um, and thanks to everyone. It's time now, unfortunately, for us to, to wrap up this really um, uh, insightful and generative discussion. Um, thanks to everyone on the panel for your contributions to that discussion. Thanks to the um, attendees for coming and asking such insightful uh, questions. Um, apologies if you're, if we didn't have time for your question. Um, and thank you to the Haldane Society for organising this event and to, to Art and Saskia in particular um, uh, for their work behind the scenes to, to make this um, event happen. Uh, that's all from me and the panel. Um, thank you very much um, and I'll see you uh, at an event uh, very soon I'm sure.